Harriet Hayden was the wife of Lewis Hayden. And I need to introduce Lewis Hayden only to people who have never read anything about the abolitionist movement in America, or have never read about Black Boston in the 19th century. He probably was the most well-known African-American in the 19th century in Boston. And he was so because of his just uh, incredibly intense involvement in the abolitionist movement. And after that, he became a political and civic leader in the newly freed African community in the country. He came from Kentucky, was a runaway slave from Kentucky. He had met Harriet in Kentucky and actually went back after he escaped to help her escape from slavery in Kentucky and lived a little bit in Detroit and then they came to Boston. But when they came to Boston, they came to Boston immediately to be involved in the abolitionist movement. Their home on what was then called South Axe Street, which is now Phillips Street still exists. And it is probably the most documented site on the Underground Railroad in New England. I could go on for a long time about that, but what I want to talk about that is so important about the work that the Athenaeum and Theo has done on these albums is that Harriet before now has usually been in a sentence that said, Lewis and Harriet Hayden, or Harriet Hayden, the mother of, or Harriet Hayden, the husband of, or even in the end of her life, Harriet Hayden, the widow of Lewis Hayden. We are going to see and hear about Harriet the woman, Harriet the activist on her own as a black woman in the 19th century. And that is so exciting. I met Theo Tyson at the Athenaeum in 2019 when they started working on these albums. As a matter of fact, I think that Theo and these albums came to the Athenaeum about the same time. And she is a curator and avant-garde academic. She explores fashion, art, and sociology, offering narratives that provide points of entry for civil discourse. She worked previously at the Museum of Fashion Film and also at the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. She is currently the Polythea Star Fellow in American Art and Culture at the Boston Athenaeum and is the first African-American in the curatorial staff of the Athenaeum in its 214 year history. So please join me in welcoming Theo Tyson. I have to take a breath because it's always a pleasure to occupy any space with Byron, even a virtual one, but that was an exceptional treat. 
not only to have him introduce me, but to give you that amuse-bouche, if you will, for Harriet Hayden and the albums. Um, so good evening and welcome everyone. Again, my name is Theo Tyson and I'm the Polythayer Star Fellow in American Art and Culture at the Boston Athenaeum. My role here as a fellow is a curatorial one that offers me this opportunity to engage and interpret items in our special collections that bring to the forefront those histories and narratives of marginalized, underrepresented, understudied identities and entire communities. As Byron mentioned, my explorations are of fashion, art, and sociology to offer narratives that provide points of entry for civil discourse. That discourse that I'm creating is meant to bring the visual culture, oral histories and stories of Black, LGBTQIA+, and women artists, authors, and artifacts to the forefront in the hopes of beginning a new historiography in canon. And perhaps the word inclusive will not be as necessary moving forward. And with that, I would like to humbly introduce the Harriet Hayden albums. This lecture, like my research, engages photography, but not as an art form per se, but more as a cultural phenomenon. Um, I'm not going to give you Beaumont Newhall's history of photography, um, although you're welcome to engage in that tome of a text, but I do wanna offer a little bit of, of background and context. It was invented in 1839 um, and it began with daguerreotypes. Daguerreotypes of Black and African diasporic people were often taken without the consent, will for participation, or respect for humanity of the subject, often for pseudoscientific purposes to perpetuate, reinforce, and invalidate white supremacy and racism. The French literary theorist and philosopher Roland Barthes described the emergence of photography among other things, as a truly unprecedented type of consciousness. Unfortunately, some of the more resonant images embedded into our collective consciousness of Black people in the 19th century are those prevalent in pretty derogatory daguerreotypes of the time used in the um, in the advocacy of slavery and phrenology. Uh, Deborah Willis, Deborah Willis uh, Dr. Deborah Willis recently released an amazing book to make their own way in the world on the Zeely daguerreotypes that I strongly recommend you engage to learn more on the subject. But tonight we're going to focus our attention on the beauty and dignity of the individuals in the Harriet Hayden albums. You've had a few moments to look at the carte de visite and to see what it is. If you can imagine, you can see the size and scale. It's reminiscent of those, um, some fond, some not so fond memories of photos that we used to take at school, trading cards, Cabbage Patch Kids, if I don't date myself too much, um, but they're about that size. Um, and carte de visite, uh, abbreviated CDV, you'll hear me say that later on this evening. 
They originated from Louis Dodero, a French photographer in Marseille. He's credited with inventing this format in 1851, but as capitalism would have it, it didn't really enter the market until it was patented by a Parisian photographer in 1854, Andre Aldo Fugin de Uh, It was usually made of an albumin print, which was a thin paper mounted on a thicker paper card. So again, thinking about trading cards and you can see the, the size there. Um, as the first type of photograph made from a negative, it's small size and really inex relatively inexpensive reproduction cost made it a hit among Americans, uh, particularly during the Civil War. And CDBs replaced those daguerreotypes, um, which aside from their content, they were, they were also expensive to make and create and almost impossible to reproduce. So the shift into this new format resulted in a democratization of photography and portraiture. And the shift was particularly apparent upon African-Americans against whom the daguerreotype before had been so oppressive. Um, and also not just oppressive, but it was so prevalent. It was not something that you could escape from much like our 24 hour media cycle today. Uh, the carte de visite was one of the most widely used photographic processes during the Civil War, as I just mentioned, and it was produced well into the 1870s. Um, again, fairly small, super inexpensive. They became this international standard, uh, collected, exchanged, placed in family albums. Uh, author and Civil War historian Ronald Coddington wrote about how CDVs essentially became the Facebook of the 1860s, and I don't disagree. Uh, essentially, these albums and the photographs that they hold were a 19th century version of social media. Photography was also something embraced and accessed across race, gender, and class divides. Born free or otherwise, dressing for the photographer was an opportunity for fashion equity. And when I say fashion equity, I'm speaking, I'm speaking specifically to the sociocultural performativity of clothing and dress as a simultaneous act of resistance and assimilation for Black Bostonians in the 19th century, particularly for formerly enslaved people and newly free people. The carte de visite represented a an initial point of entry and perhaps their first opportunity to control both their public and private identities. As a visual practice, a carte de visite can be likened to the textual practice of choosing a new name upon emancipation. By design, CDVs were a declaration of status and identity that offered the sense of empowerment and reclamation. The, the audacity of their inherent sense of pride, agency, autonomy in regards to their inalienable freedom as humans is evident in the images that we're gonna see. And the visual biographies composed in these albums 
speak true to the power of portraiture. So before we really dive into the albums, um, really want you to kind of get into how important photography is and why. Um, we're going to look at a CDV of Edmonia Lewis, the 19th century sculptor, who was the first of African-American and Native American heritage to garner her level of fame and acclaim. Uh, contemporarily, one would call her a celebrity. And she may have thought that of herself considering that her photo that we're looking at here was taken by celebrity photographer, Henry Rocher of Chicago. The CDV really provided an opportunity for people of color to craft a representation of their own identity, kind of leveling the playing field of portraiture by replacing, reforming, and really reimagining the historically derogatory representations of Blacks and Africans and African-Americans. It was an opportunity for them to be seen the way they saw themselves. And I'll come back to Edmonia Lewis a little bit later. Cards of visites were born from calling cards. Again, we've been talking about this trading aspect. Um, they usually bore the owner's, owner's name and an emblem and were presented to a host during some sort of social visit, if not through um, a letter or a personal exchange. So there were images of politicians, authors, explorers, sports stars, and other notable persons that were widely circulated. Um, if we think about the Underground Railroad and people traveling that route and knowing if they were in a safe place, these carte de visites and calling cards were key to safety in making sure that they were with the right person so they had a symbol of that individual's likeness. Um, Byron said a little bit about their home on Beacon Hill, and it was a beautiful, beautiful place that still exists today. And it was a revered one and a place of refuge during the height of anti-slavery activity, abolitionism and self-emancipation. And in spite of um, and in defiance of the lethal enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, that they would be gifted this collection in the 1860s is not surprising, but it is indicative of their status in the community. The images that we're looking at here on your left, the first album, um, this is the first page from the first album and it contains sitters that are primarily from Massachusetts. The inscription on the inside cover reads Mirza's Harriet Hayden from her friend, Robert Morris, June 8th, 1863. On your right is the second album, which is a little bit larger than the first. And that one has sitters from various parts of the country with an ink inscription after the title page that says Mears's Harriet Hayden, presented by T.Y. Birmingham, N.D. Considering the importance of women, especially Black women, is of dire importance to me as they continue to be overlooked in history and historiography. 
In the same way we know more about Lewis Hayden, as Byron mentioned earlier than Harriet Hayden, there's an unfortunate lack of knowledge and interest in those who played the supporting and oft leading roles in activism, but were not attributed those accolades due to their gender. Um, as we just observed with the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, um, it's the exclusion of Coretta Scott King if we are talking about celebrating a legacy of activism and social justice, which is different from celebrating his birthday. Um, within the movement, she played a tremendous role. For these women to be characterized as only wives is a discredit to us all. I say this as you note perhaps the inscription on the top of the album sleeve that you see on your right. It reads Mirza's Robert Morris, which is actually an erasure of Catherine's identity. I look forward to learning more about Catherine and sharing it with you soon, but for now, I'll share some information about Mr. Catherine Morris. Robert Morris is a well-known Black Bostonian touted as the first really successful colored lawyer in America. In addition to his notoriety, there may be another reason that Mr. Morris appears in the Harriet Hayden albums. He collaborated with, the, with Lewis Hayden on the release of Shadrach Minkins a not yet freed slave who had been imprisoned under the Fugitive Slave Act. In fact, they stormed the courtroom together and were arrested together, but thankfully they were also both tried and acquitted together. One wonders if the two men were close, what the relationship between Catherine and Harriet may have been like. Um, and we actually do have a collection of Robert Morris's papers if you want to trifle through those and see what you can find and perhaps find a connection that we've, we've missed on what perhaps Catherine and Harriet's relationship may have been like. And I didn't gather that information by looking at this photo. Again, he's a pretty prominent figure, so there's plenty of information on him to be found. But if we were to walk through sort of a, um, a visual thinking strategy or object-based learning for my educators and the audience. What are some of the things that we can discover? On your left, I've transcribed the inscription on the verso of the carte de visite. It reads, attorney Robert Morris, rated as one of New England's greatest lawyers, donor of $20,000 to Cathedral, Boston, one of the first lawyers to defend Irish immigrants. So what do we get from that? We get his occupation. We get a sense of philanthropy. We get a sense of religious belief or affiliation. And the other thing that we get is literacy. And when we talk about literacy, we know that enslaved persons were excluded from education through liter literacy laws weren't allowed to read and that even freed black people could be brutalized or murdered if view, viewed as being uppity and not knowing their place. Um, that place being illiterate and in their servitude. 
This is Robert Morris Jr., the son of an exceptionally literate Robert Morris. Yet, how do we know that considering the name inscribed in the album is correct? You can see it says Captain Charles Whitehall. One of the, one of the things that Robert Morris had a penchant for doing was bragging on his son, um, as most fathers do brag on their children. And one of the individuals that he bragged to was a statesman and fellow attorney. Charles Sumner. He wrote to him about his son that was away at university. Again, how do I know that? Not by looking at this image, but because the Boston College Law Library, who holds some of his papers, have an exceptional letter that exemplifies it. And that discovery was not mine. And so I'm going to take this moment to probably thank Laurel Davis and Mary Builder. They were browsing our albums online when they saw a familiar face from a letter that they had researched from an article. I share this story to share the importance of community and accessibility. I'm grateful to the Athenaeum for making the full digitization of these albums a priority. Um, and while I'm in the, in the spirit of showing gratitude, thank you to Tim and Ruth Carey for their generous contribution that allowed our super, super amazing conservation lab to restore these albums so that we could share them uh, with the community. So here we meet members of the Grimes family, the only black family unit that's featured in the albums and the only husband and wife that are sharing a frame. On your left, you see Reverend Leonard Grimes by African-American painter Edward Mitchell Bannister. He's not really known for his photography, but he actually photographed several of the individuals in the Harriet Hayden albums and this particular one of Reverend Grimes who was a pastor at 12 Baptist Church, known as the Fugitive Slaves Church. And churches were really central to the abolitionist movement. And they persist as centers of African-American community activism today. In the center, you see him with his wife, Octavia J. Grimes. And you notice her modest yet prominent self-fashioning of the respectability politics associated with being the first lady of the church. Um, so she's exceptionally covered, the large bonnet, the huge bow, the excess of fabric. Um, I won't go down a full fashion rabbit hole just yet, but I do implore you to look at the way that these people have adorned themselves in these images. On the right, you have their daughter, um, and you see on the inscription is Mirza's Emma Grimes Robinson. So we're making progress. Um, at least we have her first name included after the Mirza's. G.H. Um, Loomis, um, another very reputable photographer in Boston at this time, took this particular image of Mirza's Emma and also several of her father and the one that we're looking at of her parents. 
So though this may not be one of the more intricately detailed images um, in regards to clarity, and you can see that it's, it's quite faded and um, it's just a halo, it's not a full bust, um, but it's one of my favorite photographs in the album as it was the first to provide a direct connection to Harriet Hayden, even though there was no additional information on the verso of the CDB. Joanna Louise Turpin Howard and her husband, Edwin Frederick Howard, a barber and caterer, stayed with the Haydens for about two years. Thus, it's plausible that Harriet and Joanna went about their activism in tandem. You could imagine if you welcome, we, we, we know how we have felt in quarantine and we've been in close quarters. So to stay with someone for two years, you have built a relationship with this individual. So I was really excited to discover Joanna and the albums. And it seems as though she held a very socially prominent place in the anti-slavery movement and often hosted abolitionists in her home, own home after she moved out of the Hayden's home. And doing that actually, just a, a quick aside, hosting abolitionists and allies um, in private homes tended to be safer than meeting in public places, even public places like the African Meeting House. Uh, Joanna has a, a beautiful engraved six piece silver coffee and tea set that was gifted to her by a not yet named friend that was privately held by her descendants right up until 2000 before entering the collection of the National Museum of American History in 2013. Um, and I encourage you to check that out. A um, fairly familiar face in the albums was Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Frances is most celebrated for being a, an exceptionally prolific writer and poet, but she was also a really avid activist and a serene speaker. She traveled the United States on the abolitionist circuit and assisted with the Underground Railroad. Uh, which makes one wonder, was Francis ever a guest in Harriet's home? Did they interact or was it an, an image that was placed there because it was maybe Harriet's favorite author or she admired her in, in some way? This is, I hope at this juncture, a, a fairly familiar image to our audiences as this has been our lead image at the Athenaeum since their acquisition of the pair. This is Virginia L. Molyneux Hewlett Douglas. Her photograph is one of the most elaborate CDVs in the al album and arguably one of the most beautiful and quite possibly one of the most expensive due to its hand coloring. Hand coloring CV CDVs in the 19th century is a contemporary equivocate to retouching um, and was often done by women. And often those women were the wives of the photographer. And there, there's much to be said on that, but to ensure that I don't digress, there's an exceptional chapter in the gender of photography, how masculine and feminine values shape the history of 19th century photography by Dr. Nicole Hudgens, 
who's an associate professor of history at the University of Baltimore. Um, it's the gender of coloring. I highly suggest you check it out because it also lends itself to the conversation of considering photography as a fine art. But again, I, I won't digress. Um, and discovery with Virginia, even as rich as this image is, has been challenging because yet again, you see that she's designated as Mears's Frederick Douglass um, with the inscription on the top. And I can only imagine much of her life being lived in the shadows of her marriage to the son of the most photographed American of the 19th century. And then add to that, her father, Aaron Molinokulet, was exceptionally prominent as he was the, he was the first African-American member of staff at Harvard University, um, their first curator of the college gymnasium from 1859 to about 1871. Yet even in their patriarchal shadows, if you will, she could find and see herself and the beauty of agency in dressing for the photographer. And one must not forget how extraordinary the art of clothing oneself can be. The art of clothing can be indeed extraordinary. And in this case here, it was revolutionary. Meet Union Army veteran, Jack Williams. She was born Frances Louisa Clayton in 1830 and enlisted in a Missouri regiment with her husband in the American Civil War, where they fought in several battles. Cross-dressing was by definition a covert matter, but clearly her husband was aware of her gender. And you can see here, if I gave you enough time for pause to examine the image, her transformation into a male soldier, soldier was quite convincing. And she accessorized her military uniform with social constructs of masculinity from altering her gait to smoking and gambling and using profanity. And smoking, gambling, and profanity were of course things that were not tolerated, if you will, from women at that time. Um, it's also thought that she never broke character. Um, so in a time when women were expected to wear dresses, as we've seen all of these women in dresses um, leading up to this, anyone in pants and especially a uniform was deemed a male. Bloomers, as they were initially dubbed after suffragist Amelia Bloomer, sent shockwaves through American culture when women started openly wearing them around 1851 or so. And that was at a time when prominent women's rights advocates were seeking suffrage for women and women wearing bloomers became the symbol of uppity women that were challenging male authority and unsexed and there's, I, I curated an exhibition on suffrage, actually anti-suffrage to commemorate the centennial celebration of the 19th, 19th Amendment. And Victoria, I'm sure can drop that into the chat. 
So you can take a look to kind of see what that movement looked like and how this is something that plays into that. Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, the second oldest historically black college and university or HBCU was founded by this gentleman, a Massachusetts born Baptist minister by the name of Henry Martin Tupper. This photograph was made by a Cincinnati, Ohio based photographer by the name of Vincent. I mentioned Mr. Tupper's birthplace, the location of Shaw University, and that of the photographer's studio to further discuss how CDVs were circulated. This one possible proof of the trading card nature and calling card culture of the 19th century. The panel has an angled graphite inscription at the bottom right corner that reads Mr. Tupper, Shaw University. And there's also a note in purple ink on the verso that you see on your right that reads Mirzis Lewis Hayden with fraternal regards of Fletcher Sherman, Cincinnati, Ohio, May 22, 1871. Whose relationship to Harriet or Lewis has yet to be determined because I've not yet learned more about Fletcher Sherman's identity, but doing so could undoubtedly lead to information that could reveal more connections, the identity of others that are named and unnamed in the album, and of course offer more opportunities to guide us directly to Harriet. This social history and movement that I'm speaking of is, is also very deeply rooted and truly rooted in community. We can see and know this even without knowing the degrees of separation of the individuals in Harriet's albums. The Harriet Hayden albums give us an opportunity to explore an, an interconnectedness of a multicultural community of black and white and multicultural and mixed abolitionists, activists, soldiers, parishioners, and it gives me hope of a sense of humanity and civility. From left to right, we're looking at the verso, or sorry, the verso, the back of the CDVs here. On the left, we see a previously unidentified black man wearing a Union military man coat. This previously unidentified gentleman is Robert Morris Jr. That school that his father was bragging about to Charles Sumner was in France. So you see here the Montpellier mark of the photographer. Um, in the center, we have a currently unidentified black child in a cape um, that's hand colored. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. And then on the right, this is going to be a little bit of an assignment if I can put on a professor hat for a second. I'm not going to show you the image of John Jones, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about who he is. He was born free in North Carolina to a freed black woman and white man. He eventually became the first African-American to hold elected office in Illinois and led the fight to desegregate schools in Chicago. It's worth noting that he rose to fame while bu building his business as a tailor, which is a trade that he began in Memphis, Tennessee. 
This presents a premise for his presence in the albums. First premise, Harry's husband, Lewis, was also a tailor. So there's the potential for a professional connection if he was coming into town, sharing, networking, etc. cetera. Um, two, both Harriet and Lewis were huge proponents of education. In fact, Harriet donated her estate to Harvard Medical School to establish a scholarship for African-American students upon her death. Here on the left, we see General Banks and his family who were photographed in Louisiana. So again, I'm bringing another location into this community. And I don't, don't quite yet know what their connection to Harriet is, but I do know this. Even though CDVs cost relatively little money, they did cost more than a nominal amount of time due to longer camera exposures. So imagine how long it would take to get a family of five situated with or without neck clamps. And there are a lot of neck clamps in this album um, that we had the pleasure of working with a wonderful intern by the name of Maddie Zidane from University of New Hampshire that helped us cultivate how many of those were present. So this posture that you see in all these images is very, very intentional. In the center, you'll see Annie Birmingham and on the right are the children of Samuel T and Annie Birmingham. You'll recall that those are, um, this is the family of one of the gifters of the albums that has more of a geographical variety. The community represented in the albums isn't just multicultural, it's intergenerational with photographs of children, women, and, and elders as well. Uh, this, is, this is probably a good time for me to share before I talk about the child on the left, that there were a lot of photos in the album that were hidden behind others in their sleeves, um, perhaps indicative of a familial relationship. If you'll think about perhaps albums that we may have had um, in our childhood or some of the younger people in the audience you may have seen at an antique market. Um, there's photos that you put in the back when you get a new one of someone from the same family when they get older, et cetera. Um, so these present other pathways for us to pursue, to find connections. So beginning from the left, we have this currently unidentified child wearing a beautiful cape. Um, it's hand colored. You can see to the, with the chair, um, that beautiful blue. And it looks like they might be wearing knickers or breeches, but that's also the reason that we're not fully able to make an exceptional confirmation on their gender due to breaching. Breaching was the occasion when a small boy was first dressed in breeches or trousers. So from the mid 16th century until until the late 19th century or early 20th century, young boys in the Western world were unbreached and wore gowns or dresses until an age that varied somewhere like toddlers uh, between two and eight. Um, in the center, we have a young woman, Jane Ho Watson. And on the right, you see an elder, 
William H. Logan. Like these albums, this page is a window that allows us to peer inside lived lives of the 19th century. As you can see at the top, there's an affectionate graphite inscription that reads Papa Hayden. Uh, that's clearly a term of endearment that speaks if nothing else to the community's reverence for Harriet's husband, Lewis. It also raises questions surrounding the author of the album's inscriptions. Uh, is it possible or probable for Harriet to have written Papa Hayden above her beloved's photo? Um, and also, is she the one who removed it? Uh, what you're seeing in the frame, that J.W. Watson photographer in North Carolina, is from the image on the other side. They were dual-sided frames. So Lewis's photo was removed and, you know, did, did Harriet hold on to it after he passed away? Was it, what we, we simply, we don't know. But again, as we start to, to thread through the albums and hopefully find some of these connections, we can tell. Um, but we know that, that someone has this photo and, and someone truly cared about the Haydens um, and someone else that truly cared about the Haydens was white northerner Reverend Calvin Fairbanks traveling first to Ohio and ultimately finding in refu refuge in Canada. That was the route of the Haydens for their freedom and they were assisted by the gentleman that you see here. Um, and he was actually jailed for this. Um, and as paying it for it would have it, the Haydens later returned that assist um, and helped him free himself and aided in his release from prison. I believe it was after, I think it was after 12 years, but don't, don't quite quote me on that. Um, and speaking of holding on to things and wondering if, you know, Harriet held on to that image of Lewis that was in the album, we know that William Monroe Trotter held on to these albums. Um, and he could be, I, I just mentioned that we don't know who all of the inscriptions are from. He could have been someone that, you know, if he saw an image and perhaps it didn't have an inscription, he added one. Um, so he could be responsible for some of those. Uh, he was raised in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston and spent his life in a militant and uncompromising fight for full equality in all things governmental, political, civil, and judicial. Uh, Byron mentioned, mentioned Justine Fisher's Birth of a Nation that's currently on view in the long room and for which Ms. Fisher is presenting a lecture next week. And there was a film by the same name that Trotter protested um, because the film was overtly racist, exceptionally controversial, and can be cited as a start to an encouragement or resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. And this could explain why he kept the albums, maybe. Because um, he, like Frederick Douglass, understood the power of the image, albeit still photographs or moving images like Birth of a Nation, the film and that the personal is political. So when you're making these representations of individuals, 
that that means something and we appreciate everything that everyone did to bring these albums to again i've mentioned mr morris and dr birmingham and mr trotter and mr trotter held on to these and did a, a huge service to us all um, in preserving these albums before they made their way into the public domain and were acquired by the Boston Athenaeum. But make no mistake, these albums may have been acquired by the Athenaeum, but they truly belong to Harriet's descendants and her dear community of activists and allies in Beacon Hill in Boston that still reside here in Boston, in Dorchester, in Roxbury, in Jamaica Plain, and all across Boston today. And with that, I think it's time that we get to know Miss Harriet Bell Hayden. She escaped slavery in Kentucky with her husband in 1844 before landing in Boston and promptly becoming an abolitionist. That was their entire reason for coming back after they escaped. She ran a boarding house in their home as an auxiliary for the Underground Railroad in support of the Boston Vigilance Committee. And she was called an excellent wife as a soldier in a letter regarding the 54th Regiment to the Anglo newspaper. She was also a mother to two children, Joseph and Elizabeth. Harriet was Lewis's second wife and believe, we believe she was married previously to Joseph's father, quite possibly a Mr. Bell. Not too surprisingly, there's not a CDV of Harriet in her albums. And to my knowledge, there is only one known image of Harriet that we see here. This photograph is part of an album acquired by the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in 2019. The panel is scribed with Mirza's Hayden, assisted to escape from slavery by Reverend Calvin Fairbanks, who has recently been released after 12 years by a president. The album Harriet is a part of includes white anti-slavery politicians, William Lloyd Garrison, President Abraham Lincoln, uh, Colonel Robert Goldshaw of the 54th Massachusetts fame. Um, it has a dual portrait of Charles Sumner and Henry Longfellow and has their signatures below. Um, and you, you heard about that before. Um, and Edmonia Lewis is also in the album. So what does it say that Harriet Hayden's album was, Harriet Hayden's image was included in an album with some of the most well-known individuals come celebrities of the 19th century? And furthermore, if she was that well-respected, why was she, why was her name not included on the plaque that designates her home as a historical society on Phillips Street in Beacon Hill? Uh, the answer to those questions and, and myriad more are yet to come. Um, and there will undoubtedly be more questions than answers. <laughs> Due to the, the fallacies of historiography, then, and that's driven by a, a white male heteronormative patriarchy, there, there's so much that has been erased and omitted from, from history. And it's a history that includes the beautiful lives that are represented in the albums. Um, and though there, there is most certainly a racial bias built into photography uh, that Harvard University professor and vision and justice get editor, Dr. Sarah Lewis speaks about so eloquently. 
she, as do I and others, know how integral a role photography has played and continues to play in African-American lives, and it's crucial. These photographs offer a sense of dignity that defies any preconceived pseudo-scientific notions of a destiny of detriment due to race, gender, or class. These photographs offer proof of life and a sense of hope. They offer proof of the power of photography. And this is just, again, an amused bouche. Um, and again, I can't do this alone as that story from the BC Law Library shows. It's my sincere hope that you will take part in reimagining and restoring these histories by engaging with me in the Athenaeum to continue studying them and sharing your findings with us and the community. And whether it's led by sheer curiosity or scholarly research, you are the key to unlocking everything these albums have to offer. So thank you for your time this evening. And Victoria, I think we might have time for a few questions. Quite the introduction. <laughs> Thanks, Theo. Yes, we've got some really great questions in here. So, First off, what research materials are you using to identify the individuals in the albums? And have you been able to make connections to any of their living descendants? In regards to what resources, all of them, everything I can get my hands on, whether it's a, a, a newspaper, um, it, it, it genuinely, it could be an article, it could be a book, um, I was reading uh, Boston Abolitionist by Carrie Greenidge. It's, it comes in, in so many different forms. And again, it came from a law library, which is somewhere that I wasn't expecting to look. Um, tell me the second part of that again. I'm sorry, Victoria. Oh, no, it's okay. Um, I just lost my question. Hold on. Um, and have you been able to make connections to any of, uh, of the images, um, their living descendants, any of the images of the people um, in the Maybe, maybe. Maybe we're we're I, I think we're super close. Um, we're we're always trying to. Um, I, I I don't claim to be as a historian, but as historians and of course the catalogers that we work with at the at the name, we always want to be sure. Um, so we think there are several connections. Um, quick aside, I mentioned Joanna Louise Turpin Howard earlier. Um, Byron's mother's maiden's name. So I need to find out if he's a descendant of someone in the album. So again, that invitation for everyone to look at the albums and see if you see a familiar name or face is a genuine one. How do you imagine the albums were used in the Hayden household? Do you think they were displayed and constantly referred to or kept more privately by Harriet? I would lean towards the first, um, just because again, of the social nature of the, the, the photographs themselves and of the albums. Um, because again, if you imagine a 19th century parlor or living room in a home, you invite someone in, they're sitting down, you share this album with them as you're preparing tea. Um, so it's to kind of, it could be people that have visited your home or again, these are the people that I admire, the poet Francis Harper, et cetera. Um, but again, I, I, towards the end, I mentioned that Lewis Hayden's photo was absent, um, and we don't know what that absence comes from. Um, 
there's a beautiful image in the album of a woman that I think could be in mourning dress. Um, so again, there's, it, there's, that's another pathway. Are there points of entry in the albums to understanding how U.S. abolitionists, oops, sorry, just got moved. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, U.S. abolitionists worked with anti-slavery activists in other countries? Not particularly in this album in regards to what I can see like a geographical imprint on the albums. I haven't seen that yet uh, with the exception of Robert Morris Jr. that was studying in, um, in France. Um, but again, because some of the verses are blank, I, I can't say that without certainty that there wasn't some sort of transatlantic, you know, communication and photographers and other, we know Frederick Douglass traveled extensively, you know, Edmonia Lewis, you know, spent most of her time in Rome, Italy. So it's absolutely plausible. Just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you spoke of CDVs as enabling people to craft their own self-presentation, but weren't they subject to the photographer's concept of them, just as we are today when we sit for a photographer? Absolutely, absolutely. As you go through the albums, you'll, you'll start to notice that even if it's not the same photographer and you see the same photographer show up repeatedly in the albums, there's, <laughs> it's almost like a, self a filter if you will for today's world where it's like everyone's using the same filter like everyone has the same chair the same mantle the same carpet the same draping so on and so forth the same table with the cloth and the book and the lamp and the um and so you see you see that but you also see some customization um i i mentioned um Virginia Molino Hewlett Douglas's father, there is a CDV of him with all of his gym equipment, um, like trophies, like he's got the dumbbells, he's got the volleyballs, he's got the base, he's got everything that represents his career. Um, if we look at Sojourner Truth in the books, again, conveying literacy. So there was kind of a, a template or a format that came with the photographer, but there was some customization available for sure. Has any photo been identified as Joseph Hayden? No, not yet, not yet. That's a great question. Nobody asked about Joseph. And the interesting thing about Joseph is Joseph is Harriet's son from her previous marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and Lewis was also married previously and he lost both of his children. And he writes about how painful that experience was but he welcomed and accepted Joseph as his, as his own. Um, we know that Joseph fell ill um, and, and passed away. It was just he and Harriet towards the, uh, towards the end. I don't read a lot about Elizabeth, the daughter. Um, not too much I have found there. Again, there's a um, gender um, situation there and finding out that information. Um, but perhaps, perhaps. Does the Athenaeum have any other special collections items related to the Haydens? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, um, I, I don't. I don't mean to make that a, a trite response, but the the answer is yes. There are a ton of resources. Um, I included um, a bibliography on the landing page mm -hmm. of the Harriet Hayden album website. 
Um, and if there's anything specific that I mentioned this evening, um, we are going to make sure that we, we make that available. But uh, BC Law Library has Robert Morris papers as do we, we have some amazing, we have a, yes, the answer is yes. We'll end on this question because I'm sure you could talk about this forever. Um, but, and where did it go? Can you tell, can you speak more about the importance of fashion in the albums? What does it tell us about the subjects? This can't be the last question. Come on. <laughs> One minute roundup. Um, the fashion tells us everything. It, it really is. I'm gonna make this about me for a moment. Um, fashion is how I came to art and how I came to history um, because it's something that can be very intimidating and unapproachable and having access to it is, is very challenging. Um, but if we think about it, you usually don't meet people naked so fashion was that one, let's level the playing field right now. If we can't talk about anything else, we can talk about your sweater. Um, we can talk about, you know, there, there's some point of connection. And then when it came to art, um, there's, you can't address any painting, any portraiture without addressing what the individual is wearing. So we translate that into photography and we see in an actual likeness, not just a rendering of it through brush strokes. And clothing is the closest thing to your, to your body. It's an absolute representation of your private and your, your public identity. No matter the level of performativity, it embodies everything that you are. And to, as we start looking closer at the photos, I look at things as to whether or not their garments are, are well tailored. Does it look like something that they bought for the occasion? Does it look like something that has been upcycled? Um, again, I just mentioned the woman's attire in mourning, looking at their accessories, um, the way that they've, and fashion isn't just about clothing and dress. It's about accessories. And we, you know, we talk about, you, you don't let the clothes wear you, you wear the clothes. So it's like, how are they using this to tell their stories? Um, so you add posture and gaze to, I, I speak a lot about fashion equity and it's really, especially in the 19th century, it really speaks to this, this simultaneous act of resistance and assimilation. Um, we talked about the, the self-naming and that reclamation. So when you can actually, and I talked about breaching earlier, black men as slaves were not allowed to wear pants as a way of emasculation. And, and that was one of the methodologies of the slaveholders. So to be able to don a suit meant something. To be able to fight for a country that you built with your bare hands to put on that uniform meant something. So. Fashion is everything. 